0: This morning, as we begin, I'd like to read the 122nd Psalm. It's a Psalm of David, and David, of course, is the man who is the focus of our study. And it's a Psalm of David having to do with the city of Jerusalem, which is the focus of the event that we're talking about. So it's an entirely different mood and an entirely different focus than the passage we're studying in Second Samuel. But let, let me read the uh, 122nd psalm. It's a brief psalm. I was glad when they said to me, "Let us go to the house of the Lord." Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance of for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For there thrones were set up for judgment, and the thrones of the house of David, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who loves you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Father, as we read through the course of the history of Scripture, of the men and women of God, we are given pause at the great failures and yet the great successes. We know, Lord, that you're a God of mercy as well as a God of justice, a God of loving kindness who expresses that loving kindness even in discipline. And God, we are in such great need of your loving kindness and as well as your discipline. Father, as we study the life of this man, David, I pray that we will focus on the fact that in spite of his weaknesses and failures, he was a man of God who, who would turn from his wicked ways and would glorify your name. <laughs> Father, I pray that this will be a constant lesson to us as we face temptation day after day, whatever that temptation may be, that we need to be on guard and that we may, need to trust in, in your strength and that when and if we do fail, we can come to you and trust you for forgiveness and cleansing and for the new infilling of your Holy Spirit that we might live to the glory of your name. Bless our time here together, I pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Let's turn to Second Samuel chapter 11. We finished up chapter 10 last time and we began this rather momentous passage in chapter 11, chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel are two of the most profound and dynamic chapters of all Scripture, both because they descend to the pit and rise to the pinnacle. Talked a little bit last week uh, as a way way of introduction about some other comparisons in Scripture with this. But let me read again the first five verses, which is as far as we got last time and will be as as far as we get today as well. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. And she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Last week, we began to look at uh, this passage uh, to note things like what does it mean when it says in the spring when when uh, kings go out to war, and we talked a little bit about that and saw some examples uh, from history. I also pointed out the fact that this was not a battle in which there was just a war like it had been earlier with the uh, Arameans in the 10th chapter where David, David's army routed them and they fled from the battle scene. It was all over and maybe in a day. This was a battle which led to a siege. And so Joab was responsible for laying siege to the city of Rabbah. Again, pointing out that Rabbah is, is right here. Rabbah Ammon, uh, today it's known as the city of Amman, the capital of the uh, Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. And the people who primarily lived there, and, uh, and at least the family that rules there, of course, had nothing to do with the Ammonites or the Amorites or any of the otherites. The kingdom that rules there is an export out of Saudi Arabia, as the whole Hashemite family is. They used to rule Saudi Arabia until the Saud family took over and threw them out. And now they rule Iraq and, and, uh, and Jordan. But, or did, they still rule Jordan, but of course Saddam is a bit of a rebel there. But Rabbah is right here. And so from Israel, the army came across and they defeated the armies in the field. And then they laid siege to the city of Rabbah. And, and that's the, the scenario. That's the, what's taking place while David back in Jerusalem and the events that we read in this uh, passage occur. Uh, sieges are never good things. And we talked a little bit last time about the, uh, the difficulties of, of a siege. And so, in, in the midst of all of this, it seems very logical that, uh, David was, back in Jerusalem, at least from the human point of view, it seems that way. If David had gone with the army in the initial attack upon Ammon, he probably would have returned to Jerusalem once the siege was laid, because why would he sit there uh, in in the midst of the siege for months and possibly even longer? It would have been foolish for him to allow himself to be subject to all the vagaries of a siege. And I mentioned last time different things that happen in a siege. Uh, when you're laying siege to a city, uh, you're subject to disease. I mean, I, don't, I can't even tell you how many times in history armies that have been set in, in circumvallation around a city have been ravaged by disease that sets into sedentary camps of men all mixed, you know, living together in, in, in tents with, with poor food and poor sanitation and all those kinds of things. And attacks from from the walls of the city and and armies that might be aiding the besieged attacking from the outside and uh, trying to get enough food to feed an army in such a concentrated situation. It's it's very difficult. And so it would not have been a very wise David to have encamped with his army there around the city once the siege had been laid. If you read in the 17th chapter, we won't turn and take part in this particular battle. Now, he had been, in effect, a career soldier. Uh, Not necessarily by his own choosing, but ever since he killed Goliath, uh, David had been, in effect, a career soldier. And he always led his men. I I mean, you go reading through the pages of of 1 Samuel and into 2 Samuel, and you find David is virtually always leading his men into battle. That he failed to do so in this instance may imply one or more of several conditions, and I think several of these conditions apply. First of all, maybe a diminished interest in commanding troops. David had been commanding troops for a very long time and he may have been a little bit tired of it now. Thank you, I don't think I want to go out to the battlefield anymore. Maybe a fear of of being injured or killed, and since he was the kingpin of the empire, uh, that was very important. Uh, All you have to do is read the story of Alexander the Great to discover how important a charismatic leader can be to, to not only an army but to, the, to a whole empire because when Alexander the Great died, the whole thing fell apart. This whole great empire he built was hinged on one man. In, in David's case, he, he may have thought something similar. In, in the 12th chapter, we're going to discover that David finally does go to Rabbah because Joab says, okay, Rabbah's a route ready to fall and we're about ready to capture a city. You better come over here so you can be the one to capture the city so that you get the glory and it's not me who gets the glory. And so uh, David would go. But it was too late by then to prevent the folly with Bathsheba. Secondly, there probably was the perceived need that David should stay at the nerve center of the empire. Jerusalem was the capital of, of an empire. This, this, all this territory inside the outer red lines here and even up, up in here was, was part of David's empire. And somebody needed to be in charge. If he went off to, to, to Rabbah, which was out on the border and was locked in a siege over there, who's going to run the country? Well, some psychophants that he's left behind. And can he trust them? Can he trust whoever leaves behind? So, no, he'll stay there. And uh, he'll be at the nerve center of the empire. I, th- I think that could have been encouraged by the fact that he, thirdly, trusted Joab. He trusted Joab and his brother Abishai, to be able to lead the army just as if David were there, so that Joab could do it as well as he could, so he didn't really need to be there. And so those, those kind of two fit together, trusting Joab and feeling the need to be at the center of the empire. I think these were thoughts in David's mind. But I think the fourth condition is, is probably the key one here, and I think this was a sense of complacence on David's part. His great success at empire building had brought unprecedented peace and prosperity to Israel. They had never seen such glory and, and such wealth and, and such territory under their control before in their history, and they would not since that time. And he may have been tempted to bask in the glow of his great victories, to take his ease. Let Joab do the work. I can sit back now and, and rest. I've, I've done my job. Complacence is generally a very dangerous attitude. Sin most often comes into our lives when things appear to be going well and and the seas are fairly calm and we're sailing right along and and, uh, temptation tends to sneak in in those times because we've let our guard down. We're, We're totally relaxed. We're beyond relaxation to complacence. Often when we feel that all obvious enemies have been subdued and everything is secure, uh, temptation to sin does not seem as threatening. doesn't seem as dangerous. It's kind of like if you're in a canoe and you stand up in a canoe, if, if everything is calm and the canoe is moving straight ahead and there's no seas are calm and everything, that might not seem terribly threatening, but if you're in the seas are going like this and you stand up in a canoe, it's certainly going to capsize, you know, and that's the way many might feel relative to sin. Even though usually we know that sin gives Satan a toehold in our lives and probably will bring chastisement from God, it's possible that we might feel our losses are going to be minimal because everything is safe and secure and everything is going so well right now. This condition, I think, has played a role in the failure of many Christian leaders, especially some of the televangelists in the last decade or so. I think it has a lot to do with this complacence. I'm, I'm secure in what I'm doing. You know, God is blessing me, so hey, if I dally around over here, it's no big deal. This is something that usually wouldn't happen if we were in the midst of a spiritual battle or crisis. If a storm is raging, what are we doing? If a storm is raging, we're on guard. We slap on our spiritual armor, and we've got our, uh, we got our shield up, we've got our sword in our hand, and we're ready. We realize in those conditions <laughs> That to yield to temptation, such as this one that David yields to, would leave those who are depending upon us to lead them to victory or to help them with victory, will cause them to be confused in a vulnerable state and doubting whether God is real. I, I, I mean, if, if if a godly person such as this falls into such a deep pit, what's the hope for the rest of us? Thirdly, there's the fear we might lose the larger battle. that we might allow the enemy to actually push back the kingdom of God. Oh, I realize the scripture says the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church, but God's church has taken a horrible beating many times in history because of the failures of God's people. In the 12th chapter of this book, we're going to see Nathan sticks his finger right in David's nose and said, you have caused the enemies of God to have reason to blaspheme his name. So Satan tends to come when we're thinking everything's okay. We're relaxed. We're complacent. You know, we're, we're not in the battle at the moment, we might say. Because that's when we're most vulnerable. And that's when David was vulnerable. You and I all need times of rest and relaxation. That's a given. Sometimes we need more of it than we actually take. But there's a difference between rest and peace and complacency. Complacency is never acceptable because it can be a very deadly condition. You remember Gideon's test? God said, Gideon, you've got too many soldiers. And so all the guys who were afraid went home. And then to, to winnow out the, the, the kernel of corn from the chaff of the army, he, he took them all to a river and they were supposed to drink. And, and those who were complacent had no thought about the, the, the battle, just stuck their heads down the water and sucked it up. Whereas the others who were alert and were, or on guard and were not complacent watched while they lapped the water with their hands. They were always ready for the attack of the enemy. And I think there's a spiritual truth in that. We need to lap water, not stuck, stick our faces down in it, so to speak when it's time to rest and it's time to have peace. Obviously, David was taking his ease. And this is clear because it says he arose from his bed in the evening. Charles Spurgeon wonders whether David had simply become self-indulgent. Nothing indicates that he went to the roof of his palace to pray. Doesn't say he went up to the roof of his palace to give evening prayers to God appears that he went up to the roof of the palace wondering what to do next. Oh, I had such a good afternoon nap, now what do I do with myself, you know? My army's off fighting and my, everything's at peace in my empire. Let me just kind of wander around the roof and see what there is to do. To look over his capital in the cool of the evening from the roof of his palace could seem like a perfectly innocent activity. We, we know that later in scripture there's an account of a Babylonian king who did the same thing and got himself into a peck of trouble as Nebuchadnezzar stood on the roof of Babylon and said, is this not great Babylon which I have built? <laughs> he spends the next seven years eating grass running around naked on the palace lawn. <laughs> David, of course, didn't know that story because it was <laughs> 500 years later. I'm not sure David was totally innocent what he was doing up there. I think he might have had an inkling of what might be visible from up there. David already had many wives, and yet he would allow the lust of his eye to lead directly to the fulfillment of the lust of his flesh. His palace apparently overlooked the city, and in the psalm we read this morning, David mentions that Jerusalem was compact, that's to put it mildly. Again pointing out to you that the city that David occupied at the time is not the old city of Jerusalem, which you see today. If you go visit Jerusalem today and, and you walk around its walls here, you're walking around the walls of a much later city. In fact, those walls were the final portion of the wall is the Turkish wall that was built in the 16th century. So the upper part of the walls, if you walk on the walls of Jerusalem, which you can do, you can walk around the walls of Jerusalem, and it's, it's, a, it's a fun thing to do. You're walking on walls that are only 400 years old, the top part. Now, the lower parts of the wall have different ages as you go clear to the foundation walls. But we're talking about this little city here, which is not even inside of old Jerusalem today. It's outside. Right over here, you have another hill uh, on which is, a, is an Arab city called Silwan, And you have the valley here called the Kidron Valley, which runs up this way. And way up over this way, you have the great hospital up there here, this valley here, uh, the Hinnom Valley, comes around uh, the southern end and over this way. Uh, much of this has been filled in over the time. But this ridge still exists. It's called the Ophel, And you can see it. And it slopes off very radically. It slopes from, from uh, north to south. And, and it slopes from the words Jebusite City to the two sides, east and west. But the steepest slope is over here on this side. So David's palace was probably, where you see the word Milo uh, or up in this, his probably is up in this part of the city. So he looked down over most of the city from, from up there. And as I mentioned to you, we're, we're talking about a city which had a total, total area of this time of not more than 10 acres. So talking about a compact city, was a compact city in which, these, in which David uh, was ruling. So here he is walking around on his palace, overlooking down into the city below, and he 's looking down into what are otherwise are private areas, you know area, courtyards and in yards they 're sealed off or shut off from the street, but you can they 're visible from from above and so as David is looking down, he observes this woman bathing now we you know all kinds of things can be said about this, but i, I don 't think there 's nothing in the Scripture that indicates that she was totally unclothed here. But she was bathing in the courtyard of her house, possibly going through the ritual cleansing that a woman had to do every month, according to Le- Leviticus chapter 15, or, or maybe a daily sponging. we don't know what. But somehow, here she was, she was bathing. The fact of the matter is, it's stated in scripture that she was strikingly beautiful. And the fact that she was washing herself, and that David was let his eyes fall and and rest upon this vision that he saw down below, this this inspired his natural male interest, and he was in an unguarded condition. He had been taking his ease; he was not spiritually uh, tuned up. He had taken all his armor off, apparently, his spiritual armor of Ephesians chapter six, and Satan was able to use this woman to entice David, not just to a visual lust, but to uncontrolled sexual lust. Now scholars disagree as to whether the book of Job was in existence at that time or not. Some think it's the oldest book in the scripture, others believe it was written much later in time. But had it existed at that time, uh, David would have probably known from the 31st chapter of the book of Job. Job writes these words. Job 31, beginning at verse 9. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, may my wife grind for another, and let others kneel down over her. For that would be a lustful crime. Moreover, it would be an iniquity punishable by the judges. It would be Fire that consumes to Abaddon and would uproot all my increase. Abaddon is the place of destruction. Uproot all my increase. would destroy my marriage. It would destroy my home. It would destroy me. David didn't even know who this woman was in spite of the fact that she was the wife of one of his 30 mighty men, the core of his army. The 30 mighty men that he would have rubbed shoulders with more than any other men in his army. Honored individuals. He didn't know who she was. David was allowed himself. Now you have to understand, David allowed this to happen. Well, as a flip Wilson popularized the, the, the term, the devil made me do it. Uh-uh, uh uh-uh. The devil is able to tempt me. He makes us do nothing. We choose. We allow. David was so consumed by his lust that he took four actions here. First thing he did was send a messenger out to find out who she was. Good idea, at least find out who she is. While he was waiting for the messenger to return, he allowed Satan to embellish this whole thing in David's mind. I mean, this just grew to a raging fire in in David's mind. And at the same time, he quenched the voice of the Spirit. The still, small voice of the Spirit. David, when he finally repents of this, writes the, the 51st Psalm in which he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit was on David, and he didn't listen. He shut off the voice of the Spirit. He quenched the voice of the Spirit. The Scripture tells us to quench not the Spirit of God. That's New Testament, of course, but David certainly knew the concept. Secondly, second action he took here, was to purposely set aside some major red warning signs that were flashing there. One was that she was the daughter of a Hebrew by the name of Eliam, whose name meant God is my kinsman. I mean, just the guy's name should ring a bell in David's mind. God is my kinsman. And then secondly, that she was married to Uriah the Hittite, one of his 30 mighty men. As soon as he heard the name Uriah, he knew instantly who she was because he knew very well who Uriah was. Uriah had served David well. Otherwise, he wouldn't be amongst the 30 mighty men if he hadn't served David well. He was somebody that David respected, someone David who, whom David had honored. Interesting, Uriah means the light of Yahweh, the light of God. But he's called the Hittite. Wait a minute here. You know, Uriah is a very Hebrew word, but Hittite is not Hebrew at all. And so what we must assume from this is that either he or someone in his ancestry had become a proselyte. The Hittites had lived scattered through the land of Palestine when the the conquest occurred. There were Hittites living there. And and some of them certainly did convert. And so probably uh, Uriah came from an ancestry of Hittites who had converted to, to the Hebrew life. But we're still identified as being Hittites. The name Bathsheba means daughter of, of an oath, or uh, daughter of an oath, or sometimes daughter of seven. But what's interesting is in 1 Chronicles, she is called Bashua, which means daughter of abundance. So the fact that she, she was the daughter of an honorable Hebrew with the, with the name Eliam and that she was the wife of Uriah, one of his closest military associates, should have put a screeching halt to all of David's plans at that very moment. His third action was to send messengers to bring her to him. That was a major choice he made. A commitment. Bring her to me. You know, at that point, point he just let the whole thing loose. His fourth action, of course, was when she came to seduce her and to commit adultery with her. We have to understand that this took a period of time for all these events to take place. And there was plenty of time and opportunity for David to, during that time, come to his senses, to listen to the still, small voice of the Spirit of God within him. The Spirit of God is generally going to speak to us through the Scripture. Through scripture we have read, through scripture we have memorized, through scripture that somehow is embedded within us, the Spirit will bring that to our attention. That's usually how he speaks to us. And David certainly knew a lot of scripture, but he wasn't listening. And he did not allow his passion to cool. Instead, he ran through every red light, purposely, 100 miles per hour. He could not plead ignorance. He knew so well the seventh commandment. He knew the whole decalogue. The seventh commandment, which simply says, you shall not commit adultery. He knew what this was. He knew this was adultery. And certainly he also knew the equally blunt statement, a commandment given in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 20, which says, you shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. It was a deliberate act of self-indulgence, absolutely deliberate. If he thought about God at all, I think he assuaged his conscience with these words from Leviticus 20.10, if a man, if there is a man who lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's, that's not the word I want, uh, the passage I want. What did I do here? I'm reading the wrong verse. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife. The adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. I mean, that's clear. But I think David was depending on the mercy of God. David writes a lot about the loving kindness of God and the mercy of God. And I think that was what was running through his mind rather than these words of judgment or of discipline. Jesus later expands on the um, seventh commandment You read his words from Matthew chapter 5 at verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. So, I mean, this is David's picture drawn out perfectly. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go to hell. Jesus is not advocating that we actually dismember ourselves here. He is stating of the seriousness of this whole thing. It was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of dismissal, but I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery." So Jesus took the simple, not simple, but the commandment and and expanded it to, to show what it meant, what it meant in the first century, what it meant, of course, when it was first given. The ramifications of visual adultery were understood in Old Testament times. And this seems to be indicated by Job's very simple little statement in Job 31, the first verse where he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze at a virgin? If the lust of the eye remains only in the mind, it is sin between that person and God. However, as in David's case, if the lust of the eye leads to the physical act of adultery, it becomes a public act. And affects far more people than just the individual who had the thought in his mind. Sin is sin, of course. And any sin trashes our relationship with God. And the only way to restore it is, of course, to go to 1 John 1.9 and confess our sin and know that God will forgive and and restore our fellowship. But to carry a sinful thought into sinful action, such as David did here, harms and destroys other people than just ourselves. Hebrews 13:4 warns, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Doesn't say he may, he might, says he will judge. And as we see, as we go on in this chapter, everyone in this event paid a high price for David's folly. Bathsheba was an object in David's eye. She was not loved by David. He didn't even know who she was. You can't love somebody you don't know. And so what we have here is unvarnished lust. He was attracted to her purely on the basis of her physical appearance. That was what drew him, nothing else. And so he didn't really care about who she was. Because if he had cared about who she was, he would have cooled this off in a hurry. Because Uriah was one of his closest associates. And how can you violate the trust of a man who means so much to you if you care? But he didn't care. Even when he found out that she was the wife of Uriah, he says, bring her. I mean, that should have been like cold water in his face. (sighs) Untouchable. But I think it's important for us to at least consider that Bathsheba may not have been totally innocent. And this seems to be implied in the passage. She was bathing where she could be seen. If only from above. Higher class women of what she would have been bathed indoors to avoid this very thing from being seen by anybody. I mean, you know, they were not objects to be viewed by everybody. So they bathed indoors where they would not be seen. But she was bathing outdoors. Certainly David and others had walked around on the roof of the palace before. And she probably noticed them up there. So she wasn't exactly, you know, protecting her modesty here. She knew that she was attractive. I mean, the description seems to indicate that she was extraordinarily attractive. Beautiful. And uh, she probably knew that. And she may have aspired to be noticed, particularly by the most powerful and the most popular man in the whole empire, the king himself. She may have wanted to be seen by him. Whether she wanted all that would follow to happen or not is another thing. Years ago when I was working at a, for a bank, uh, one of the guys I worked with was a highway patrolman and, and we both had this part-time job and, and um, he happened to make the comment one day because he had been involved in some busts that had to do with prostitution and so forth. And, and he said uh, to him, he says, if, if it's not for sale, it shouldn't be on display. And, you know, that kind of is the point here. You know, if it's not for sale, it shouldn't be on display. But I think, you know, it's possible she may have been a bit unwitting. And that Satan, her, Satan used her as a tool, using her own, you know, her own desires to be noticed and, and to be thought of as somebody uh, to become a tool to entrap David. Secondly, there's no indication in the passage anywhere that she protested or offered any resistance to David, none whatsoever. But I should point out from that that to whatever degree Bathsheba may or may not have been culpable the onus of the sin rested on David. Even if she were guilty of being a willing tool in Satan's hands to ensnare David, it was David's responsibility to be on guard against each and every ploy of the evil one. Unfortunately, David was responsible for setting himself up for a fall by violating God's specific command concerning marital relationships of the kings of Israel. As we have quoted before from Deuteronomy 17, 17, God said, The king shall not multiply wives unto himself. Yet we discover David has many wives and concubines, 18 altogether. So by breaking that command and taking several wives for himself, David blurred the line, blurred the line, between love and lust, between marriage and adultery. Where is that line? You've heard it said many times by the great British political philosopher that power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, David is in power. And there is a corrupting influence there that you have to be on guard against. That's why you go down through the pages of history. You will find very few monarchs and emperors who were truly good men or women. They usually had serious perversions and, and, and serious evil was involved within their reign, even amongst those who profess to be Christians. <coughs> Deliberate disobedience of God's word always sets us up for disaster. Always. You can count on it. The thrill of the moment is quickly replaced by very, very long-term pain and humiliation. David, as you read through, and later on as we talk about Nathan's response to all of this, and, and we read David's Psalm 51, you just get a feeling of a man who just wished it had never happened. He would have given almost anything to go back and do it right instead of wrong. Certainly, David felt uneasy in the weeks following his adultery, But, you know, the Scripture, the way you read the 11th chapter and even into the 12th chapter, you get the feeling that David probably tried to minimize, excuse, or ignore the nagging feeling inside of guilt. You know, you can quench the voice of the Spirit, but it's going to come back. Now, how often he thought about Bathsheba in the following weeks, we can only speculate, doesn't say. Uh, Maybe he was hoping that the whole thing would be forgotten and he could just move on as being the most extraordinary, extraordinarily popular and powerful king in Israel, Israelite history. However, Jesus taught his disciples that there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Therefore, a few weeks, it doesn't say how long, but a few weeks after the act of adultery, Bathsheba sent David a note, and it was like a bombshell. As he read that note, Bathsheba informed him that she was pregnant. Try as he might to sweep this sin under the rug, those three words, I am pregnant, would forever change David's life. Well, we'll start with 6th verse and see how this thing progresses. And uh, the rest of chapter 11, chapter 12 are very powerful passages that indicate that God doesn't just let you blow it off. God follows it up and God will bring us to our knees as he did David.